0: You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network.
1: You're listening to "Updates for Healthcare Providers: Experiences from the Front Lines." This episode was recorded live from the presenters' homes and without access to professional recording equipment. We hope you enjoy. Sure. So,
0: um, my name is Susan, Susan Paul, and I'm a physical therapist. Um, I've been at the college since 2002. Um, My role there uh, is really around practice questions or uh, projects at the college that relate to practice issues. Um, I assist with some of the professional issues teaching uh, at uh, at UBC for the MPT classes. And I work from time to time clinically in Fraser Health. Um, That's me. Uh, uh, Diane, if you
2: could go next.
3: Uh, sure. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Diane Millette. I'm the registrar of the College of Physical Therapists of BC. I am a physical therapist by background, but I've spent most of my career uh, working in health professions regulation, most frequently in, with physical therapy, but not exclusively. So that's a bit about me.
2: Great. Thanks, Beth. And then I've got uh, Nicole's, my next box over.
4: My name is Nicole. I am a physiotherapist, and I work in uh, Kelowna, West Kelowna, in community care. And I do that part-time, and I also work um, for a mobile physio company where we see people in their homes in West Kelowna also called Stride Mobile Physio. And,
2: And Pete? Thanks, Nicole. Oh, we've got you muted. Hang on one
5: second. That's a rookie mistake, John. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Who brought um, this guy? Yeah. Exactly. Look, hello to everyone, panelists and participants. Thanks for coming tonight. It's, uh, I'm delighted to be involved in such a worthwhile uh, program. I'm Peter Curtin. I've got a, I'm a clinician and clinic owner in Vancouver at Dunbar Physio. Um, I've been practicing for over 35 years and an owner for about 30 and enjoy both roles, uh, contribute a little to the PABC by being a member of the Business Affairs Committee. And um, hopefully the COVID-19 pandemic is the biggest challenge I have to face in my career. I think we all agree with that one. And then uh, last
2: but not least, Jason.
6: Hi, folks. Um, Jason Kulin, I, uh, a clinic owner for the past 10 years. I can't beat Peter on that one. Um, Practicing for about for about 18 um run Oak Ridge Physiotherapy. I have some business partners that I, I work with at a couple other clinics in the city called Banker Physiotherapy, North Van and North Shore. I'm currently um, sitting on the board of directors of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. So a member there um, just got revoted in, which is wonderful. And of course, I'm also a past president of PABC uh, for four years from 2013 to 2017. And hopefully I can share some info and some insights. Right, thanks
2: and congratulations, I guess, congratulations, Jason. So, thank you, uh, thank you everyone for, for introducing themselves. Um, one of the first things we wanted to do tonight was actually overview the process for how the CPTBC guidance document, the BC Center for Disease Control, Infection Prevention and Control Guidelines, and the WorkSafe BC Health Professionals COVID-19 protocols actually came to be. Uh, Diane, if you could actually please just provide some of the background on this.
3: Uh, sure, thanks, Jonathan. So- Uh, I'm gonna start the discussion with a very brief overview of uh, how these guidelines came to be, so what was the process, Uh, why did it take some time to actually get them out to physical therapists, and what we might expect uh, going forward. So the college began discussing the development of the guidelines, um, particularly for community services long before the government's restart plan or phase two uh, plan was announced. And we knew that once um, healthcare practitioners could begin resuming in-person services, there would be a need to provide some guidance. So that very much motivated our early work. Uh, while we were waiting for the restart plan, uh, Susan Paul led the development of a guidance document based on information that was available at that time and Susan looked provincially and nationally and internationally at what was out there and that certainly informed the first draft of the guidance document we had. Um, But as it turned out, the initiative was of interest to many, many other colleges and it led to a collaborative effort across colleges through a group called the BC Health Regulators. And that's a group of the 20 health regulatory colleges that exist in British Columbia. And and this became quite important because as we continued the discussions, it was increasingly evident that we wanted consistency across the professions to the extent uh, possible. So clearly there's a difference between PPE requirements for dentistry versus physical therapy versus massage therapy. But really the principles and some of what we're now seeing as hierarchy of controls, such as physical distancing or environmental controls, are the same regardless of what the profession is. So once we had agreement across the colleges, and that, as you may imagine, took a little bit of time, the document was sent to uh, Dr. Henry's office and her PHO team, including Dr. Henry reviewed the guidance document. And their recommendation came back that we should remove several of the sections that Susan had drafted and to rely upon experts from organizations such as the British Columbia Center for Disease Control and uh, latterly WorkSafe BC. Those organizations we knew were working really hard to develop guidance for many sectors and health, the health sector was only one of them. They were doing this for banking and retail and restaurants and civiculture and many other industries. So it took some time for them to actually draft guidance across the range of disciplines that they were doing this for. And because we, as a college, do not have expertise in public health, uh, nor does any other health regulator, including the College of Physicians and Surgeons of, of uh, British Columbia, we needed to wait for the experts to finalize their guidance. So the BCCDC and the Work uh, Safe BC documents were released on May the 15th, so Friday, May the 15th. And the college then released our guidance document, including links to their expert documents that same afternoon, late in in the day. Uh, I will acknowledge that we know this was not soon enough um, from the perspective of many physical therapists. We heard that loud and clear. Uh, However, from a ministry perspective, the phase two restart uh, was always intended to be a gradual return to work. And it was to consider when information such as the BCCDC guidelines were available and when sectors really had the time and took the time to prepare. So the May 19th um, date, which was out in the media and and we talked about as well, was really the commencement date for phase two restart. It was not to be the absolute go from zero to 40% where where we might go to um, on that particular day. And we realized that was a challenge for physical therapists. They were waiting for these guidance documents and they were um, available just before a long weekend. Uh, So we expect that as time passes, there will be updates uh, to these documents. Uh, PPE requirements, as an example, have changed over the past two months and there were weeks where they were changing daily. And we expect that uh, as public health learns more about this virus, that's going to continue. Uh, The college is also tracking questions that we get. And this week, earlier this week, on Monday, we released a frequently asked questions document, which we will update over time as we get um, more questions that come to us. Um, And Susan and her team have time to process those and actually update that document. So today we're at a place where community providers can begin resuming providing in-person services, uh, keeping in mind that this is not business as pre-COVID. Uh, The recommendations in BC and certainly across Canada uh, with physical therapy regulators for sure are to continue to provide virtual services, uh, provide in-person services only after you've done a careful risk assessment and where it's possible to continue to follow those patients that you have seen in person virtually um, as much as one can. So as public health uh, provide us, the college, with updates, we'll share that uh, with Physical therapist as soon as it's available and um, uh, hopefully that provides you with just a very brief overview of where we've been and um, I'll pass it back to you, Jonathan, to continue the discussion.
2: Sure. Thanks for that, Diane. That's actually, uh, there was a lot of new, new information in there for me so thanks for sharing some of the, the process in coming to, to where we are today. Um, so, just before we get into the bulk of the webinar, I just wanted to sort of outline how we'll be proceeding. So, what we're going to do here is a section-by-section section discussion on some of the key areas, as outlined by the BCCDC's Infection Prevention and Control document, it, with support from CPTBC's guidance document and BC's health professionals' protocols. And then, after each section, I'll direct a few of the applicable questions from Slido to the panel. Uh, before we move on to the next section. And then we should have some time, hopefully at the end of all of the sections to circle back to some of the questions that were not yet answered. So what we're gonna start with first is the environmental measures, and this includes things like physical changes to the clinic space, as well as cleaning and disinfection. But if uh, Susan, if you could probably describe it a lot more eloquently than I can.
0: Sure, Um, so just to give you some context, really the way we're gonna frame the webinar tonight, um, we've broken it into the same sections that the CEC document uses in their hierarchy for infection prevention and exposure control. And Steph, if you wouldn't mind just popping the slide up, um, I'm gonna keep referring back to the hierarchy. So we've just got one slide prepared for tonight to give you the visual cue for that. It is on page three of the guidance document. There you go. So you can see there's five levels starting at the top is the public health measure. And I think the the important thing to know is the title um, because we've had a lot of questions about what to do if, if you think there's been an exposure, COVID exposure at your clinic. And so important to know that this is about infection prevention, but also exposure control, this hierarchy. Um, and that uh, that's going to become a little bit more apparent as, as we move on tonight. Um, but as I say, the five levels, and they start with the most effective measures um, to implement. And then as you move down the hierarchy, they become less and less protective. And so at the top is public health and environmental measures. And so public health measures include things like the directive that Dr. Bonnie Henry put out in March um, to ask us ask health professionals to reduce service to minimal levels um, you know, some, those are some of the sort of big, broad, sweeping provincial health officer um, guidelines, things like putting limits on the number of people who can gather, um, implementing contact tracing. So that's sort of at that top most protective level. And then the next hierarchical level is are the environmental controls. And as Jonathan said, that's really about the physical changes we make to our practice environment. And those are things like, you know, providing visual markers to cue people to stay two meters apart but it's also about maintaining two meters distance um, between our staff members and um, in conversation with the registrar at the dental college you know he was pointing out that the um, the dental surgeons conference that happened at the beginning of March that the spread there was actually um, following the conference was between colleagues and I believe he said there wasn't a single transmission to a patient as a result. So it's just a reminder not to let your guard down. We spend a lot of time with our colleagues and so it increases the risk of transmission. So to remember that the physical distancing is not just with your patient but with your colleagues as well where possible. Um, You know, there's some suggestions that will be easier at some clinics than others. Things like increasing ventilation by opening windows or doors where possible and not surprisingly increased attention to our cleaning and our disinfection practices.
2: Great. Uh, thanks, thanks for that, Susan. So then I just actually wanted to throw it over to Jason, Peter, and Nicole, whoever wants to take this one first. Just What stage are each of your clinics, companies, or, I guess, health healthcare authorities at, just in terms of the reopening? And maybe if you want to touch briefly on some of the, the sort of physical clinic setup uh, features that you've implemented.
5: I can kick off if you like there, Jonathan. Perfect. Thanks, um, the clinic feels like it's had a, a total overhaul um, in the time that um, we went between. We stopped mid March through to uh, mid May. Um, it's been significantly stripped down. Um, the treatment rooms are where we're seeing the most change. We're down to a, a basic plinth, uh, small patient shelf, um, physio stools, um, all space, all surfaces that can be wiped very quickly. Um, In fact, I'll give you a two-second tour and give you an idea of what it currently looks like. So if we pop into somewhere like here where we would normally have a a chair and maybe some blankets, um, flat surfaces, wipeable surfaces, um, no chairs, patient sits on the side of the, the bed there. From the front desk point of view into a waiting room Waiting room looks like this. No chairs, couple of marks on the floor. Big long temporary screen protecting the patient. The whole clinic really looks like that. If you glance through and you see all the flat surfaces, there's nothing left on the flat surfaces which you want to pick up. That's uh, Diane. And, yeah, there's nothing left on the flat surfaces. So there's a start. Um, yeah, you know, and I'll hand over to uh, one of the next two.
4: I can go ahead next. Um, so it, with interior health, the one place, the one thing that we've made a big change in is actually physically having staff in the office. So now we have half, like we... In our health unit, you know, we have two physios and two occupational therapists. So we've split it up so that one of us is working from home of the physio team and one from the OT team is working from home as well, just to decrease that interaction between um, the staff. And then in terms and of yeah. homes, which is part of our job, um, how that's changed physically is making sure that obviously we're having that physical distance when we're going into the homes. Um, and And if there's family members or other people in the home getting the mother to be in another room or physically distancing away from us, and um, in terms of in the vehicle, it's a little bit different as well. In the frequently asked questions that the college has sent out the other day, it has a really good description about how to separate. Um, things that we're using for client care in, in the car. You know, you don't want to have things that you're bringing from the client's house into the car in the front of the car. So utilizing the trunk and having those things separate. So because our office is our car and people's houses, it's different than having an office where um, clients are coming into, we're going into their space. So that's where it's a bit different. And
6: just to pick up from there, I mean, we've, made very I mean our clinics in the city we've made similar changes that uh, Peter's referring to we've got a little bigger space in the front end of our office at Oak Ridge so it affords us a little bit of space to have probably two seats in there Um, what I've noticed in the past uh, week and a half now I there's probably there might be one person sitting in the lobby at any given time and even that's a rarity so the biggest things we've done um, outside of installing plexiglass at the front desk, ensuring everything is easily cleaned. Uh, we've implemented staggered shifts. So physiotherapists, so we have the same complement of physiotherapists working, but they're starting at uh, different times to allow for that spacing between staff and between clients. Uh, we are not booking as often. So where we would normally book every half an hour, we're booking every 45 minutes to an hour. So we're operating probably about 60 to 70% of capacity, which is fine. Um, you know, it's obvious. It's, it's not ideal for anybody at that, working in that way when you're used to something different. But um, it's better than sitting at home like we did the last couple of months. And it's, it seems to be working quite well for us. Uh, we've implemented a pretty regimented kind of cleaning process um, between clients. And it seems like our, our staff are responding really well to that. We've, we've given our physiotherapists a lot more responsibility to actually clean up after themselves. So hopefully Jonathan's doing that too. I'll, I'll check in with Peter later. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's been, a, as, as Peter said, it's, like, it's a big change. And uh, But I, I get the sense that everybody involved in our clinic, including clients, have responded really well to it.
2: Okay. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's actually been really nice to see how everyone's, I think, cross-disciplines and event videos really come together and, you know, pulled up the pants on this one. So it's uh, it's been nice, definitely. Um, just one of the questions we've had from Slido is, uh, is that the community-based therapist who primarily treats in elderly care, either in nursing homes or in clients' homes, and they themselves are a senior, and they're wondering what are some of the considerations whether they should be treating. Susan, I know we've sort of talked about the point-of-care risk assessment a little. Did you want to speak to that briefly?
0: Sure. I mean, I think that's, that is where it gets tricky. There's a lot of things to consider when you're when you're talking about risk, and I think we can't overlook our own personal situations, and whether that's that, that you are a senior, or you, um, somebody in your family is immunocompromised, or um, you know has significant comorbidities. Those are all factors to consider in terms of return to work. I mean, for some people, they don't have access to childcare yet, so sometimes it's something as practical as that. Um, and I, I don't. I don't know that I have any good answers, Jonathan, about that. Other than you know, that is a factor. We know um, that people who are, I think, it's particularly over seventy are more vulnerable. Um, but that's obviously concern if you're um, if you're in a senior age category. Something to consider as part of your risk assessment.
2: Thanks for that. And it has interior health. I, obviously, the health authorities are going to be. Um, independently coming up with some of their own guidelines, but has Interior Health given you any direction on those? uh, Which community visits are too great of a risk?
4: Well, it's more in terms of the client risk. So is the client at risk of really deteriorating or putting themselves in harm if we don't do a visit, right? We have access to Zoom where we can Zoom with clients, and that's been very useful, especially if they have a family member that can help with that technology. So where we don't have to go out, we don't, if, if it's not necessary. Um, we do, we're doing a lot more screening on the phone, a lot more of that kind of emailing and, and, and faxing stuff to Red Cross, for example, just to eliminate having to go to the home where possible.
2: Makes sense. All right. Absolutely. And then just while we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, just in terms of considerations for special populations, there's been a couple of questions with respect to pediatric care and, in particular, um, babies that require hands-on treatment is, uh, I guess, just putting it out to the panel at large, has there been any um, specific guidance that we've received with respect to babies and, and pediatric care?
0: Um, I, I can start that. I mean, the, the one that always... Um, I always think of when we think about pediatric population is they talk about how important it is for people to be, um, you know, uh, practicing good hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette. And if you're a child, um, you know, I think it's probably debatable how effective your hand washing is and, and whether you're coughing into your or sneezing into your, your elbow. So I, I think pediatrics does add an element of risk there in the sense that some of the measures that we would expect adults to be, um, you know, including as part of their own infection prevention and control measures are a bit harder to implement in the pediatric population. Um, But that's just sort of from that risk assessment piece that knowing that they may not be, um, you know, they they might be coming uh, to the practice um, setting with bringing more bio burden because they haven't potentially washed hands effectively.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a good point, Susan. It's really interesting. My just on a personal level, my fiance is an elementary school teacher, and all. Of, I think so many professions are struggling with this because how do you get eight-year-olds to comply with best social distancing practices? So I think I think the pediatric question has a lot to unpack, um, and then hopefully we'll be able to give more guidance, or there will be more guidance as, as we move forward. So then, just moving on into the next section. Uh, so we tell this one the administrative measures. So, and there is some overlap between sections here, but this sort of encompasses patient flow, scheduling, screening, as well as those special population considerations. Um, Susan, could you give us a, an over, just a quick overview of this section as well, please? Sure.
0: So, when we're talking about administrative measures for infection and exposure control, that's that third level on the hierarchy, And I think, um, you know, one of the biggest administrative changes that we have implemented and hopefully can continue to implement is providing service virtually where possible. And I think, you know, that's not going to be a surprise to people. You'll have seen that in messaging, ongoing messaging from the ministry, messaging from the CDC, um, in the WorkSafe document. And really, I mean, (laughs) providing services virtually, that is the ultimate in physical distancing. So that, that will continue. Um, you know, for in-person services, this is where I think probably my colleagues can talk more to sort of planning that they've needed to do around scheduling patients in a way that means you don't have too much overlap so that you can maintain those physical distancing requirements, um, scheduling time in, as you, you already heard, for enhanced cleaning and disinfecting, um, considering scheduling staffing and dedicated teams so that you're sort of cohorting your staff in groups in case there's an exposure in one of those groups. Um, And I think sort of on a practical level, even just reexamining things like our cancellation policies so that we don't unintentionally incentivize people to attend if they aren't feeling ill. And I was even reflecting like, you know, we might even need things like late policies because if if you carefully planned your schedule so that you don't have too much overlap, but patients are coming late, um, you might be having overlap that you hadn't that you'd carefully plan to avoid. And so I think some of those things are, we're gonna learn as we go um, how, what sort of administrative measures we need to, to implement to make sure that we're keeping um, the, the distancing and so forth. Um, I, I think that the other big one that we've been getting a lot of questions around uh, at the college is, is COVID screening protocols. And you'll see that that's an administrative measure that's required in the BC CDC document, you know, that we screen patients for COVID at the time that they make their appointment. Uh, and importantly, that we screen them again when they arrive uh, for treatment. And we've had questions about, you know, does that have to be repeated at every single visit? And the answer is yes. Uh, this is a really important infection control measure, and it has to happen every time a patient attends for in-person services without exception. Um, and we're hearing, you know, patients are getting annoyed about answering the questions repeatedly, but I think, Similarly, we're getting a lot of questions or a lot of comments from people that they have had a potential COVID exposure um, by somebody who calls and says, I'm I'm now feeling ill. And I think that's where you'll feel really um, appreciative that you had these uh, rigorous policies in place that you know you screened everyone, not just at the time that they booked the appointment, but again, when they arrived at your clinic to to do your part to make sure that you were um, uh, mitigating risk of infection transmission.
2: Thanks, Professor. And just a quick follow-up, um, does that consent need to be verbal, written, either or?
0: Yeah, so we've had a fair number of questions about does my consent process need to change, and we've actually that's actually um, addressed in our, the FAQ that we posted on Monday. So it, really, the short answer is that uh, part of getting informed consent is disclosure of relevant risks and to, to treatment. And so if you're treating someone in person, the reality is that today, COVID is a risk. And so that should be disclosed. Uh, So it's not really that your consent process changes, it might just be that you have uh, you have to add that conversation to the conversation you're having when you get consent.
2: Perfect. Thanks. Uh, I think for the rest of the panel, one of the uh, I'm stealing this from another webinar that I watched, but if you basically if you could go back and get it two to three time machine. Is there something that you can highlight that was really successful from the administrators that you set up? And or is there anything that uh, going back that you maybe like to have revisited or changed?
4: Oh,
2: Jonathan's back. Uh, um, Table connection. Sorry, guys. Yeah, did uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, did I finish with that line of questioning, or did it cut me out prior to?
4: I missed it, Jonathan.
2: Oh, I yeah. I was cut of Okay. So basically, I'll be quick. But if you had a time machine and you could go back two to three weeks, is there anything that you'd highlight as a success, and is there anything you wish you'd be able to change? with respect to the, the preparation that you did uh, with the clinic? I'll,
6: I, I can start with that just a little bit. One of the things that it wasn't it wasn't purposeful in the sense of trying to necessarily, I guess, save the business and share people. I mean, it was meant to stay connected, but it's was more or less um, provide a continued kind of administrative support to our clientele in the sense with our office down, um, We maintained a couple of staff members, uh, but it was no one obviously was in the office to answer phones. And I actually had all phone calls coming to the clinic, routed to my cell phone. And um, so it it meant I was directly talking to every single client that called. There wasn't a ton of calls coming in throughout the the first, probably seven weeks, certainly that last week it was getting crazy. Um, But um, it was, it was, Something that I didn't really plan for that, but being being a physiotherapist, not necessarily one of my administrative support team members or my office manager, I went, not only could I help with bookings or refer those you know, same clients to our admin team, I could also address questions they may have had, my, my minimal knowledge of COVID, but more so just regarding physiotherapy and care and that sort of thing, and, and route them to the, the appropriate um, physiotherapist or massage therapist professional. But it was a really great way of staying connected with uh, with clients. and I found that to be uh, really effective. And it it on an administrative level, it helped uh, keep things smooth when we were ready to return. And so a lot of the same a lot of people that were calling, wanting to book telehealth appointments would uh, would call in and and follow up. and I found that to be really beneficial.
2: Yeah, I think uh, maintaining that, it was really an opportunity to maintain some patient interaction. Um, and for a lot of patients, it was the two-month waiting period for them, too. So I, I think it really was a, a good opportunity for that patient interaction piece. Uh, Nicole or Pete, did you have any any comments on that? Or I've got a couple other questions, if not. Nicole,
5: would you like to speak?
4: Sure. Um, well, for me, working in uh, the private sector with our mobile physio company, I think that I'm not an owner, but the owners did a really great job of keeping in touch with us. And we had a few Zoom meetings throughout just to keep us in the loop of what was going on. And once the guidelines came out, um, they kept in really good touch with us. They already had the PPE source, everything like that. So I feel like there's nothing that I would really change in that perspective. They were really good at at um, keeping us informed and keeping the clients informed too of what was going on as the information came available to them.
5: Great. Thanks, thanks um, for that, Nicole. Yeah. And uh, building on those two, um, the transition from um, a very active front desk to a non-touch front desk has been a great success. Um, online booking, more on the patient's shoulders, um, online uh, booking at the end of the, the treatment yeah. session, whether it be online or in clinic by the physios, and um, having uh, credit card information on file so the patient can, be, um, can come in and exit without um, troubling the front desk has uh, made things very smooth and um, been able to tighten timelines regarding um, giving space, both time and uh, geographically to the patients as they come and go.
2: Yeah, I think all, all really good points, right? They're um, just judging by the, the questions that we've got coming in. I think there's going to be a big bulk of them just on PPE. So I think we should uh, just move on over into that uh, into that section. Um, I know there's a lot to, a lot to unpack here. So uh, Susan, I think you had a few things that you wanted to, to touch on with this one.
0: Sure. So, just before we move into the conversation about PPE just want to point out that in that hierarchy, there's one more level before we get to PPE and that's personal measures, um, some of the things we just talked about in the pediatric question, but things like you know staying home when we're feeling ill, practicing good hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette but it's worth noting because that's a level above you know even more protective than pPE those personal measures for infection prevention and exposure control, so important not to forget about those and you know, moving on to the PPE conversation, I just want to acknowledge that this has been especially challenging um, for people, for physiotherapists, for, for moving into phase two. And, you know, I can appreciate that with the variation we're seeing in the literature and across provinces, um, that I think physical therapists are really looking for a very clear directive about what PPE to use when distancing couldn't be maintained, Um and you know that didn't happen in British Columbia. We didn't get a continuous masking requirement or a masking and eye protection requirement the way some other provinces have. Uh, and I think what further has sort of added to the confusion, and Nicole, this is probably you're, you're seeing this every day because you work in private practice and for interior health, but that the health authorities um, have slightly different information about what to do for PPE. And so if you're a health, a health authority employee who works in community care, then your recommendations around PPE look a bit different than the CDC's recommendation to rely on the health professional's decision making to determine what PPE should be used. So it's complicated, it hasn't been easy, and I I, I empathize, um, it's not been easy to find answers. And as Diane said, you know, literally the conversations at the CDC and the, the sort of uh, draft recommendations were evolving literally daily um, as more information became available. And also our reopening was a bit later than some of the other provinces, so we had the benefit of, of knowing some, a bit more information, I think, about covid but I think part of what makes this idea that we're, we're all going to do a point of care risk assessment for PPE such a challenge is that I know for myself, like, it's not an area that I necessarily feel super confident about for my skill set. And I think that's based on how we've been practicing in the community pre-COVID-19. And there's been a lot of discussion amongst the colleges that probably in the community, our practices had gotten a bit lax. And so we, we hadn't really been paying close attention. So now all of a sudden we're being asked to do these risk assessments. And I think part of why that anxiety provoking is we're not sure we're really equipped to make those decisions and I think it's interesting because if we look at it in a a sort of a different way if we said you know is it reasonable for a physical therapist to have to use their own risk assessment or their own judgment um, if they're treating a patient who they haven't been seen by a physician first um, would those physios feel confident relying on their own risk assessment and judgment to determine whether that patient uh, you know, should go for more medical imaging or be referred back to their physician for some red flag that we spotted or be referred to a specialist. I think we'd all say, absolutely, we do that every day with every patient. Totally fine if they haven't seen a physician first. I'm confident that if I pick those things up, I know what the right things to do are. But I think we feel that bit differently when it comes to PPE. And I think that's what makes it attractive to have a, you know, a directive to say, oh, you have to use continuous masking. Um, so that sort of seems like an appealing idea. But I can assure you that the college had a lot of conversations, all the colleges did really, with the um, uh, Provincial Health Office about PPE requirements. And over the course of those conversations, there were a few messages that kind of came across quite clearly that uh, were a bit of sort of learning moments for me and might be helpful to share. And I think the the message that came through loud and clear uh, was that Really, PPE is at the bottom of that hierarchy for infection prevention and exposure control strategies, and that means it's the least effective of the measures we've talked about tonight. And that's really, I think that's really an important point to kind of stop and consider. And I think that the ministry was concerned based on college's requests, you know, for guidance on PPE or a directive that health professionals were perhaps misunderstanding the role and the relative effectiveness of PPE and what they want us to know is that that should be our last line of defense after we've implemented all the other uh, measures in the hierarchy. So PPE doesn't replace those measures. It's not instead of those other measures, but rather um, after we've implemented, you know, the provincial health officer directives, the good environmental, administrative, personal measures, then in addition to that, we look to PPE. So it's kind of in combination with all of the measures. And I think that's, that was kind of a shift for people to think, "All oh, right, it's not sort of a standalone thing and and, and and to consider that it's sort of at the least protective level of that hierarchy. And I think uh, the ministry was maybe concerned that if we're focused so heavily on PPE um, directives and not using a risk assessment when the community levels of COVID transmission is low, that there also might be a bit of a false sense of security or over-reliance on PPE and maybe would result in us not paying as much attention to implementing those more effective measures in the hierarchy. So having said that, I do want to be really clear that just because we didn't get a directive that we have to continually mask or we have to wear eye protection, um, you know, if you look at those BC CDC recommendations, uh, they they are clear that health professionals should absolutely use PPE when we determine it's appropriate based on our point of care risk assessment. So that means we need to um, evaluate the likelihood of COVID exposure to ourselves and our patients. And the risk assessment process is described on page nine of that CDC document. And that was posted. um, I think it went out when Stephanie sent the reminder email, or you can see that BC CDC document. um, It's linked in the college guidance document on the college page.
2: So, Susan, maybe it would be helpful if you could give people a couple examples of things to consider during their risk assessment.
0: Right. So you know, and it's gonna vary from practice to practice, but wanna consider things that are Um, you know, specific to whatever kind of interaction you're having with your patient. So am I providing care that's going to require that I'm positioned right in front of the patient's face or can I be positioned away from their face in case they were to cough or sneeze? Um, Am I able to maintain a two-meter distance? You know, Nicole was saying, like, you know, as much as possible, they're maintaining that two-meter distance even during their appointment. Um, And then thinking about the specific task and what risks might be associated with that. So um, is it likely that I might get exposed to blood or body fluids? Am I providing... You know, do I do TMJ treatment and I might be having my hands inside someone's mouth? Um, then risk specific to the patient. So again, you know, if you work in pediatrics, that, uh, in a, that maybe not uh, um, being able to adhere to sort of as good hand hygiene or respiratory etiquette. Um, and, and then I think another important piece is what's that patient's work situation? So, you know, are they a respiratory therapist who works in the ICU treating COVID positive patients? Are they a grocery store clerk? Um, are they somebody who who works from home and really doesn't have a lot of other contacts? Those things are going to impact risk as well. Then specific environments. I mean, we know how devastating it, it is if COVID um, if there's a COVID outbreak at a long-term care facility. So, considering your your context, are you are you in an environment in a long-term care setting, or are you in a clinic practice or a mobile practice? Those carry different risks, and that um, FAQ from Monday, as Nicole Singh saying, has some information around, you know, unique risks for mobile practice in particular. And then we already sort of mentioned at the top of the, the session about those risks specific to you as a physical therapist. And um, I think that's important to note that in that guidance document, that it's one of the principles is that colleges don't expect people to provide services where they don't feel it's safe to do so. And so, uh, taking into account your own um, risk profile is important.
2: Uh, thanks, thanks again for that Susan. I think too, with the despite the fact that we are reopening a, a bunch of services, we still very much are in the the midst of a pandemic is there are there certain things that we need to be considering in the context of p p e because of that?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to consider, you know, when we're talking about use of PPE in the context of a pandemic, it is very much a limited resource. And the message that we are hearing is it needs to be used responsibly and in accordance with current evidence. And so that's where the CDC recommendations really rely on the the current evidence, Um, in addition to the health professional's point-of-care risk assessment. And, um, you know, it might seem attractive for us to forego a point-of-care risk assessment and just use gloves, gowns, uh, face shield uh, masks, surgical masks with every patient. Um, but the reality is, uh, they just, you know, I'm not sure that's the responsible thing to do. And I'm not sure that the evidence supports that that's actually best practice. And, you know, we are hearing from our colleagues in other provinces where they have PPE requirements. Um, in some cases, they don't, they can't access them. And, and that means they can't reopen um, even where risk might be low, right? So there there, there, there is um, there's a lot to consider. And I I just, I don't want to, um, I don't want to give you the impression that, that we're not aware of that. We know that has been a massive challenge. It's where most of our questions, well, I shouldn't say most, but a huge proportion of questions from registrants have come to the college just looking for PPE guidance. And, and I think it's that um, it, there, there is a bit of a shift as we have to move from thinking we were going to get a directive. Uh, that would uh, just tell us what to do to that idea that we are going to have to do a point-of-care risk assessment to determine what PPE we should use on a case-by-case basis, uh, but that indeed we should use it where that risk assessment um, suggests it it, it should be in place. And I think, sorry, one last thing, you know, to Diane's point, it is going to, I expect it will change as we, as more is known about COVID. And so just to kind of continue to, you know, check the college site and and we'll continue to update you as the CDC guidance changes around PPE requirements, but that I suspect it's not not a stable recommendation. Like it's likely to change and evolve as we learn more.
2: Yeah, great point. I think we're all, I mean, COVID-19 is, and our knowledge of it pretty much ever changing. So like our institutions and what they know and recommendations will probably be updating um, accordingly, right? And I think that's actually probably a nice segue for where we've got a bulk of our questions being asked right now. So there's going to be a couple just a specific specific example questions. Uh, for, for one, for Jack's pediatric clients. So when clients can't wear masks, what infection control measures should we follow? Hmm. Silence, but this is a tough one. Susan, do you have, uh, is, is, is that something you can comment on, or should we? Yeah,
0: you know, I, I suspect that the, the, my panelists, colleagues, might be in better uh, position, because they probably run across it in practice for people. Um, I I think, you know, again, it's, it's to keep in mind that that's that last line of defense, so you've made sure you've got all the other measures in place, um, and, masking is just is one tiny piece of that bigger picture so I think then the conversation would really or the the thought process for me I think would be around um, what do I think the risk is related to um, that person not wearing a mask Um, and and am I prepared to treat them without it or does my point of care risk assessment deem that they should be wearing a mask so if I've identified that they are higher risk based on where they work or what have you um, I might decide I'm not you know I really need that I've got information from my point of care risk assessment that means this person should really be wearing a mask and I'm not prepared to treat them if that can't be put in place because that's what um, my clinical reasoning tells me Uh, but I suspect there would be a lot of scenarios where perhaps you have a masking uh, policy in place for your clinic but somebody's becoming breathless with COPD while they're wearing the mask and you might make the decision that based on your risk your point of care risk assessment that you are prepared to let them take the mask off for the remainder of the appointment, but I'd be curious to hear, because I suspect, Jason, Peter, and Nicole, you've probably already had some of those scenarios come up.
5: Well, I can um, address that there. Um, We haven't had anything like that come up. Everyone has uh, worn a mask in the clinic over the last, uh, I think it's uh, seven treatment days since we've been back. Uh, They've worn them, it's been, some of them have had them hanging off their ears and um, not covering either nose or mouth but they're still wearing a mask and um, all therapists sort of work accordingly around it, perhaps reminding them to to cover, stepping back, uh, addressing it. But we have had no one who couldn't wear a mask. My first thought is that if it did come to that, they would be put into a face shield. We have face shields at the clinic as well, so we could shield the face from that point of view, even though you're getting the drop-down effect, at least you're not getting the spray effect and we put them in a room with an open window um, and definitely maintain a a two-metre distance from them. More than likely, if they had reached the clinic at that stage and the appointment went ahead, the appointment would be like doing a very close virtual appointment um, with minimal hands, well, probably with no hands on um, and a discussion of why and then um, carefully exiting the building.
2: I think it's a lot of good t- common sense points there, Pete. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jason and Nicole, any I guess any comments on 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 that beyond what Pete touched on?
4: I can go ahead. Um, I haven't had any contact with pediatric clients, but definitely, like when you're looking at the hierarchy and how PP is at the bottom, there's a lot of steps that you can take before even thinking about PP, right? So, could it be a virtual visit first of all? Is that if you actually need to really see this person in person, so if it's a pediatric client, could they could you instruct the parent at home to do some of the activities that you actually need to have that client in your clinic? Um, for me as a mobile therapist, I've treated people out on their decks. Um, if we can't go out on the deck, the windows are open. Um, staying in a big room, not like in a little tiniest bedroom in the house, we're not there, we're out where we can use those other items on the hierarchy first. Um, so I think just keeping your distance and and being in a bigger area with open windows if possible can be a big step in the right direction if PPE isn't available.
6: The, the only thing I might add to it, I, I, I would echo what uh, Peter said. We haven't, I know personally, I haven't come across any clients that didn't come in with a mask on and um, we have masks available in the clinic for someone who happens to walk in that doesn't have one. So it's we're, we're okay that way. I guess what I might add to the conversation is one of the challenges. of it, so We we have the guidelines of the college, which which help a great deal, and um, we have our we basically have our own little COVID nineteen reference manual, and the uh, in the clinic. Uh, so taking from all the documents from from everywhere. But one of the challenges is we as practitioners, <clears throat> under kind of I think we have a better understanding now of what's expected of us. The problem, though, is in the greater community, in the greater Canadian society, there's been a lot of mixed messages about what the general public should do when it comes to, to masks. Uh, the medical community um, has been a little all over the map when it comes to recommendations and what someone, you know... Should you wear a mask and go to your grocery store? So I get questions. like I've got a couple of questions like that, like, should I wear a mask? And then finally, this past week, uh, I believe Dr. Tam came out and suggested if you find yourself in a situation where you cannot social distance, both parties should wear a mask. So at the very least, I'm sharing that with clients that have questions around that. But for the most part, I think we've been pretty lucky. We haven't had any major issues. And all of our rooms are private. We can't open windows. Um, but I mean essentially most of us as physios where we can, we actually just leave the treatment doors open. And uh, so we have, have that potential airflow or at the very least the perception that the client feels like there's, there's something there's more of an open area where they feel a little safer, whether it's true or not hard to say, but we're doing what we can.
2: Yeah, All good points. Right. And I
6: think, I I don't know if we
2: actually, if we have the answers for these next two questions, so I apologize for the lack of clear direction, but maybe if, if, uh, the three of you could comment on what you've seen so far in terms of uh, have people been using the single-use disposable mask versus a washable mask and what your clinicians and uh, the clients, as much as you know, have thought about the exposure of clothing and other than sort of having a set of work clothes and home clothes or outside of work clothes, just what's sort of been the the numbers that you've seen in terms of what people are doing with respect to clothing and what type of masks.
6: I'll, I'll start with that one. So in our, in our office early on, before we opened up, we had told all of our practitioners to make sure they take a change of clothes with them um, to the office and be prepared to change into them at the end of your shift. Um, at, at the Oak Ridge, at our Oak Ridge office, we actually happen to have a shower in the office. So we've offered that. I've actually, I've showered a couple of times at the office before going home. Um, but yeah, no. We've instructed everyone to take a change of clothes with uh, change of clothes with them, change into them when they uh, when they leave. Um, potentially, even if they if they wanted to um, have an extra set of footwear at the office, leave it there, coming and going, that sort of thing to minimize uh, contact. Most clients that I've seen come through our office are using uh, either a homemade or a bought mask. Um, I'm seeing more of that. Uh, then the kind of uh, the fabric mask, or excuse me, like the the paper, like traditional kind of medical mask, I guess you would refer to it as. Um, And we we provide, we've provided masks, gloves, glasses to our practitioners, uh, but also left it to them to decide if what kind of mask they'd like to wear. Um, I've experimented with a few and I've realized that some are more comfortable than others. But I've also come to realize that I I already hate masks, but here we are. but uh, yeah, that's, that's what we're looking at. It's like, that's a good question, Jonathan, about the close. We certainly implemented that at the office. Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks for that. And then being community-based, Nicole, like obviously that's tougher, right? Because um, each time you see a new client, it's a new setting. So what, what, sort of, um, what have you been doing and what's Interior Health kind of for guidance there? Well,
4: with Interior Health, we've been seeing clients all along right since March. Mm-hmm. So um, at first there was really there was no direction regarding clothing but a few weeks in they recommended us that if we're coming to our work site to change when we get to work so change out of our street clothes into our work clothes um, and then same thing before going home our issue is like sometimes we especially working from home now sometimes I'll we'll start work from home and then I'll go and see clients and I'll return to home. Um, Or same thing in the office, I might start in the office, see some clients, and then go home from my last client appointment. So how I have worked with that is in my car I have a towel on my seat all the time, um, and at the end of the day I take it in and wash it with my clothes. Um, Interior Health has directed us to do this, that when we get home, immediately take our clothes off, wash them in hot water, and shower. So every time I do that, as soon as I get home. And so in between clients, I'll never go home. So if I have a break, it's in my car, and making phone calls from my car, I'm not going home and, and leaving again after. I've already started my day in my work clothes, and I have specific clothes that I wear for work. I don't wear them at other times, um, and they get washed every day, so I don't need that big of a wardrobe. Um, in terms of shoes, with interior house, they recommended us to have a specific pair of shoes for work and we sanitize them between clients using the cell wipes. Um, and then in working with a private company, we actually have shoe covers that we wear in between, like that they've provided us with to wear in clients' homes. So um, that's in terms of the clothing. In terms of the mask, with Insurer Health, we use disposable masks. Um, the clients with Interior Health, I found, like, a lot of our clients are elderly. They don't seem to be wearing masks as much. We don't require them to wear masks. So it's, it's their choice. Some of them will just by their own choice, but a lot of them don't. Um, with the private work, we just started up, obviously, recently seeing clients. And all the clients that I've seen have had their own masks and chosen to wear their own masks. And they've all been cloth masks. So that's been my experience.
5: Thanks for that. And on our end, um, regarding masks, um, we've seen all sorts of masks. The clinic did provide, um, went out and sourced masks, face shields, um, and lots and lots of gloves for all the therapists. Uh, Some have chosen to wear them, some wear their own. Um, Someone like myself today, I wore three different style of masks. One paper mask, which made me feel I have COVID, one cloth mask, which is comfortable, and another cloth mask, mask, which is uncomfortable. I just like to change them, and they get washed each night. Regarding clothes, we don't have a policy at the clinic. Some of the therapists will change when they come in, because they're commuting. Um, we don't have a shoe policy. Um, we're uh, leaning on the therapist to make their own decisions on that. With respect to the patients, the patients have been surprisingly cavalier. Uh, with respect to masks, uh, gloves, uh, washing their hands and their clothing. um, I've been very surprised at how quickly they've embraced um, in clinic appointments. And um, I think we have to be careful not to let our guards down and sort of follow along in their cavalier fashion. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I think that's a good point um because... I think the thing we gotta remember is that is for patients they've been on hold for two months, so they're uh, they're probably very excited to be coming back into the clinic. So we just have to remember that um, they're trusting us to make the right decisions with safety. Sometimes even if they're not necessarily making the right decision. So I think that's a really good point. That I think the onus on a lot of these are patient interactions is on us to ensure the safety. So I think great point, Pete. Uh, just because Susan just. Dropped, and she was going to chat briefly on the um, the next section. I'm just going to take a quick little segue. Diane, there was actually a really interesting question asked with respect to um, what will happen to practice hours required for reg- registration renewal down the road. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to
3: to that. No, it's a great, it's a great question. question. We haven't um, we haven't actually had that conversation, uh, but. The practice hour requirement is over a five year period, so people do have quite a long window to collect those 1200 hours. I think if, if we faced a scenario where someone didn't make them and, and it was linked to this, um, the registration committee would take that into account but it's, it's one of the one of the items on the on the list to um, you know discuss when we when we face that. For the most part, physical therapists do not have trouble meeting practice hours.
2: All right. Perfect. Thanks for that. And then just to kind of keep this trucking along on time, what uh what I actually want to move into is what we're calling the what what if scenarios. Now, Susan, we can't uh we can't actually see your video, but can you say something? Are we able to hear you? Yes,
0: yeah, hopefully you can okay. hear me, but yeah, it, it won't let me start my video. So yeah.
2: Maybe Maybe Steph, if you could, uh, I'm not sure if you could prompt her, but if if we could still uh, get you to touch on, basically the the two main things are, so in spite of our best efforts, there's going to be some scenarios that come up. The two off the top of my head simply being what happens if a patient, a visibly sick patient, shows up to the office, and then what happens if um, it's been found out that there's been exposure, whether it's a staff or patient, to someone who was COVID-19 positive. I'm just wondering if you could touch on those those two scenarios yes,
0: yeah. and I, I think um, I'll start with the visibly sick one. I think that one is um, a little bit easier in the sense that uh, you know patients who are visibly unwell are likely going to be caught um, by your COVID signage and and screening upon arrival. Um, but if a patient does become sick during treatment, the BC Center for Disease Control recommends that if they aren't already that we get them to don a mask and we end the appointment and and um, have them leave the the practice. what seems to be much more challenging is what to do around exposures, and so we're already hearing from a lot of physical therapists who um, you know are getting a phone call from a patient a day or two later saying that they're now they're either symptomatic or they've been in contact with someone who's become symptomatic or they don't have a, a test result yet, um, and the physical therapists are wondering what they do and I think that's again sort of from a proactive perspective, that's where we want to really. It's back to that hierarchy again, and we really want to lean on what we're doing for our infection prevention and exposure control um, measures in the practice. So, again, we do our COVID screening before the patient arrives, when they arrive. We use telehealth when possible. We're using all the measures we've talked about tonight. Um, and especially it's important because we know that there may be people in our clinics who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic um, and that that transmission may be possible, though it's much less um, common. And um, I think, again, we've been talking amongst different colleges and trying to put our heads together on this. And and the current information from the BC CDC is that while community trans- trans- transmission is low, um, and where you've done your screen and for the patient, you know the patient has not been in contact with a known COVID positive person. Um, and if we're confident that we've really effectively implemented all those measures in the hierarchy, we, we might decide that in this case, no further action is needed. Um, but I, cause I think the thing that uh, made me reflect is that there's, there are people going to their physician's offices, a nurse practitioner's office, a midwife's office, and they may have um, symptoms suggestive of COVID or they may be seeking care, you know, while they're unwell. And, and those practices don't have to shut down as a result, right? They're, they're leaning heavily on those, um, that hierarchy and screening and, and, well, not screening so much because they may need to actually provide treatment to people who are unwell. But um, so, so I think that from a proactive perspective, we just want to be really make sure that we're revisiting that hierarchy. Are we doing everything we can? Um, and there is a risk assessment tool on the BC Center for Disease Control website, and I sent um, Steph the link. So she that would have been included in the email tonight. Um, that is, uh, it's a, a kind of a nice infographic around. Oh dear, um, can you still hear me?
2: Yeah, we can still
0: hear you. Okay, so it it looked like Zoom just closed again, so I think I'm having some trouble here. But anyway, that has a nice infographic around um, if you've been exposed as a healthcare worker to COVID, some of the things to consider, uh, depending on how long the exposure was, how close you were, what PPE you were wearing, what PPE the client was wearing. Um, But as I say, it's in a nice uh, sort of one-page infographic, so that might be helpful to people. But really, when we're talking about COVID exposures, that's a public health issue. So public health is in contact with every COVID positive case in the province. And I would encourage you, if you think that there's something a bit um, unusual or you're concerned that there's increased risk to you or your patient based on something in particular that's happened, that you reach out to public health by calling 811 if you're really concerned and you're looking for some more specific direction. Um, There's also a a good BC Ministry of Health COVID-19 app. Some of you might already have that. That's helpful to navigate if you've had exposures, Um, but it's, uh, it's, I think that I would say that's been the biggest challenge in since phase two started is um, in terms of the calls that we're getting and sort of what to do when you've had potential exposure. So I think again, it's leaning back on that hierarchy um, and keeping in touch with public health if you need further guidance.
2: And, and then just within those resources, because uh, I guess one of the questions we, we also had was some clinics are instituting, uh, clinics or institutions are instituting a blanket policy of if, if you've been in contact with someone who then tested positive for COVID-19 to have the two-week isolation period? Was there anything in those resources that uh, addressed that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you've if you had a close contact with somebody mm-hmm. who is COVID positive, um, and it, are you talking about while you're in in the workplace, John, place, Jonathan?
2: So the yeah, so the the question exactly, without me paraphrasing, is PTs in both public and private. Some clinics are requiring a two-week period from possible. They do say possible COVID exposure, even if proper PPE was used in an acute setting. So, okay. yes, in the workplace
0: setting, yeah. yeah. There's my infographic. Um, mm-hmm. It's got some really good information about considering, again, what you were wearing, what the patient was wearing. And then it, it classifies that it's got sort of low no risk, low risk, high risk, and tells you um, what the recommendation is around if you're asymptomatic, if you develop symptoms, whether you need to stay home from work or not. So... Um, I would have a look at that. That was in one of the links from tonight, but it's also um, it's also in the uh, the guidance document. Um, it has the link. Obviously, the college guidance document has the link to the CDC document, and within the CDC document, this is a further link um, for healthcare workers who've been exposed or have exposure concerns. And there's lots of good resources about that on the CDC website. And I, I you know, I think I was having this conversation with Jonathan earlier, but I, I suspect that public health likely gives people, um, you know, different direction depending on the specific details of an exposure. So, you know, I saying on the one hand, um, if you used appropriate PPE based on your risk assessment, if the patient was asymptomatic and you had your hierarchy in place, i, I the guidance you would get from um, public health would look quite different than if um, you hadn't done a risk assessment, and maybe you didn't use PPE that should have been in place, um, and the patient was an active cougher, and you have subsequently developed symptoms, like those are two entirely different scenarios, and so, you know, in one scenario, public health might, or you might determine that you don't need further action, and in the uh, the other sort of more risky-sounding situation, you might determine that um, you do have to take some action in the short term.
2: Makes sense. Thanks for that, Susan. Uh, so then we're just going to keep tracking along here. So our last section that we want to touch on is actually the marketing strategies. So here we wanted to look at what each individual, whether it's a clinic company or even a health authority, is doing to re-engage with our, with our caseload and our client list. So um, if I could turn it over to either Jason, Nicole, or Peter, if any of you want to share your thoughts on, on what you've seen today.
4: First. Um, yeah In terms for me and with interior health we manage our own client caseload so I've been in contact with our client caseload all along um, by phone basically for most people or or email if that's how we communicate but um, in terms of the private sector we've been emailing our clients all along to keep them in the loop um, and then letting them know when things are reopening and then same idea we kind of manage our own caseload so I was contacting my own clients just to inform them seeing how they were doing and if they needed to book an appointment.
2: Pete I think I saw you wanting to, uh, to hop in there. Yeah the mute button got me again. Didn't
5: it? Uh, yeah. So um, yes it's um, we've uh, we've we've tried to take the approach that we've, we never closed. We just changed our um, style of delivering treatment. So we've been engaging with the patients all the way through. We've um, tried to keep uh, mass emails to a minimum, to not intrude upon people, but to certainly inform them about the changing scene at the clinic, um, whether we weren't going to see people in clinic whether we, when, when we were going to see them in clinic and what they were going to need to um, consider before coming into the clinic, whether that's making an appointment or actually being physically present. Um, the communication was more um, procedural so they knew what to do and how to do it. As always, um, a good front desk is, is marvelous in this situation, our front desk, has been terrific. We've had, some, we've had staff the whole time, and um, that's been very, very important in how the patients have perceived what the clinic's been up to and what the physio's been up to. There's always been someone who's answered the phone um, every day um, in the last two and a half months or so. And now as we, the clinic opens up, we try and rely on what we've always done, good results, um, caring treatments uh communication with referrers and move forward hopefully with it all behind us yeah i mean
2: lots, I, lots of good thoughts there uh, jason anything to add or did the did kind of and nicole summarizes
6: there the only the only thing i would add to that is i mean when i met we met frequently my business partners that we met frequently And talked about strategies and and one thing that was really clear to us from the get-go is maintaining the personal connection with the clientele and so one thing that I thought was uh, very important um, when preparing for returning to the office was actually having each individual physiotherapist call each one of their clients. Right. So every physio, we brought every single physiotherapist back into the office. We staggered their visits. We practiced social distancing. We had um, at least one or two of our admin team at the front desk. So literally the process was each physiotherapist got a list of the clients they had seen, say during the months of uh, February and March, call each one of them. If uh, there was no answer, we'd leave a message. We got an actual live person. And we would talk directly about the measures that were being implemented to protect them and staff. And then that call would be uh, just transferred to our front desk. And the front desk would give a more detailed explanation of expectations of coming into the clinic, um, what the social distancing was gonna be like. Certainly lots of uh, education and screening. And most importantly, you know, from a marketing perspective, grabbing that client in the moment and, and booking them is obviously vital to the business. Um, of course, we are always concerned about the well-being of our clients. But, I mean, having a captive audience like that is, is essential. And moving forward, um, we're going to do this kind of a similar thing. So because there's going to be a, a little bit of downtime uh, in between clients, because we do have that time built into the schedule, um, our expectations is uh, the physiotherapist will also take the time to you know call clients from January, December possibly, um, in order to kind of build upon that to ensure they're – maintaining that continuity of care and
2: staying in touch with the clientele. I think that's great, right? So, I mean, having a therapist engaged, obviously, is going yeah. to reestablish that connection with the patient strongly, right? I think on the flip side, and what makes me think of this, is I, I pretty much had to beg my barber to, uh, to fit me in. Have any of you come across the scenario where you've had to prioritize which patients actually get an in-person appointment. I know the, the CPTBC guidelines does talk to this point a little bit. Has that scenario come up?
6: Um, just, I'll start with that. One. That for for us, I, for me personally as a physiotherapist, that hasn't come across. But one thing we did do across the board is any clients that were had continued with us on a, a through telehealth um, in returning to the office if any of them wanted to come in for a physical appointment. For example, I had, a, I had a couple of clients that were brand new to me that I saw in the, uh, I'd never seen in the office, it was only through the telehealth platform. Those individuals um, were more or less a priority in getting them in first if they, they chose to have one, a, a, an in-person appointment. But as far as, um, like, I like guess demand as far as a physical problem that demanded a priority, we really haven't come across that too much. Not to mention the fact that probably every, every client thinks their problem is a priority.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Nicole or Pete, uh, has that come up for for either
4: of you? Um, For us, like with Interior Health, our referrals really Mm -hmm. slowed down when the pandemic hit. And so now things are really starting to pick up again, but we do have extra staffing available because we've pulled videos from different programs. So it hasn't been a problem where we haven't been able to see someone that's a priority. And then in terms of the private work, a lot of our clients are elderly, and right now we're not going into any long-term care homes. A lot of the assisted living, we're not seeing those clients, depending on the on the facility, because some of them don't won't let us in at this point. So our caseloads are down, and so I haven't run into a problem where I've had to prioritize people in terms of not seeing them. Or, you know.
2: Gotcha. Thanks, NP.
5: And certainly on our end, um, I personally haven't come across the need to prioritize one over someone else. Um, and I haven't heard it filtering back through the clinicians at the clinic. Um, um, We sort of, we tend to prioritise people all the time when we get full, and uh, then we've got someone who needs to be seen. Um, We'll often sort of tack them on the end of the day or fit them in somewhere as opposed to um, give someone a call and tell them not to come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think good business practices are good patient practices, right? (laughs) Uh, So
2: we just wanted to circle back just to sort of, um, as we look to wrap things up to the final Q&A here. So we still have a a fair number of questions on uh, PPE and a few questions with respect to uh, students specifically. So uh, as with all questions, particularly if we aren't able to answer your questions tonight, just please know that we're gonna be reviewing all of them and that's gonna help us guide any sort of future programming that we offer. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone here on the panel can speak to the student uh, piece, but really with those questions, I'd be looking towards the UBC Department of Physical Therapy. I believe that they're in the process of, of developing some guidelines with respect to that. So that's who I would, I would direct your questions to with that respect. Uh, moving on from there, just with uh, between gloves and hand washing, do any of you know or have any, any of you seen any guidance that come out that necessarily indicates one is better than the other. Has anyone seen anything along those lines? Oh, uh, Susan.
0: Perfect. I can try that And I mean, I think from the things that I've been reading, um, one of the things to remember is that there are an awful lot of um, people who are getting contaminated during the process of removing PPE. Um, and so I think that's one that would be one word of caution where where gloves are concerned um they, the the c d c just keeps saying over and over that good hand hygiene is really um you know the best um, sort of thing we can do for reducing transmission but i I think the other thing is if it's a procedure you would have worn gloves for pre covid nineteen you still wear gloves for those um and then I think if there's some increased risk that meant that you wanted to put them on um that that would be the, that's where that point of care risk assessment would require you to use them. But um, my understanding is that um, in the, in the absence of that, that you know, um, thorough hand hygiene is sort of the gold standard. Nicole.
4: Yeah, I have another comment about that because with interior health, we do wear gloves with every client. But remembering that you always wash your hands. Before you put the gloves on, and when you take the gloves off, you always wash your hands. So even if you're switching for gloves for your next client, you still need to do the hand hygiene in between each time you don and dos the gloves.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. We, we can always just fall back on what infection control parameters we already used before all this, right? And they're still applicable
5: in many senses. Uh, and to... then I, Oh, We're sorry. Sorry, go for a I just one uh, what I find helpful is is in between or during an appointment I wear gloves all the time. And what I like about that is that you know I touch the patient, I go to my computer, I put a pump of the uh, Purell on the hands and sanitise the gloves. So I feel more comfortable touching the stuff that I'm using, and then going and touching the patient rather than sanitising my hands every time. I'd sanitize the gloves and get rid of them at the end of the
2: appointment.
5: Makes a lot of sense, yeah. It, was that a hand or a stretch,
2: Jason? Kind of a stretch, but I always go by when in doubt, wash it out. Yeah. <laughs> Common sense, right? Makes a lot of sense. I think uh, one of the questions for, probably more for the college uh, panelists here, is that do we need to document each time of the consent in the COVID screenings?
0: Sorry, I'm not sure I'm, I'm fully understanding that. Do they need
2: My, I, I think it is because it's supposed to have those multiple touch points of the um, screening questionnaire. Does, does each touch point need to be uh, documented?
0: Documented. Um, I'll let Diane weigh in on this, but I think if you had a clear clinic policy that says that, you know, when patients call to book that... They are screened, and that when patients arrive on site, they are screened. Um, if that's your policy every time, and you've got that clearly articulated, um, it's a good question. Does it need to go? Does it need to go in your clinical record that you did a COVID screen on that particular question? You know, it never hurts to document that. I, I'm not sure. I guess I, I would maybe actually ask my panelists there, what they've been doing, but maybe before we move on to them, Diane, do you have a comment about whether um, everyone's COVID screen should be documented in the clinical record as opposed to perhaps just having a clinical policy that says you do that 100% of the time?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the latter. I think it's one of the administrative controls that would be good to have in place. So, you have know, policies on, on other sorts of uh, procedures with respect to how you uh, intake Patients, for example, I think it's just part of that. So I would say it's more in the policy and procedure domain than it is having to include it in every patient record.
2: Perfect, thanks. And we're just going to do one quick rapid-fire question before we get to pearls here. And that's simply for whether it's manual therapy or any sort of treatment intervention where you have to be touching the patient, um, are you using any sort of barrier, like something between yourself and the patient? So if I can turn over to the clinicians there. Just what what have you guys been doing?
4: I haven't so, been I'm just wearing a nah. the mask. Mm-hmm.
6: I've all- yeah. 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 For for me, Jonathan, no, it's the, I would same thing with Nicole, and just the standard. No, there's no physical barrier between myself and the uh, and the
5: client. Mm-hmm. And I echo that except and add some of my techniques. Have been modified and I'm not as I'm not as close on many techniques, and I've not not comfortable doing certain techniques that bring me in sort of range of a breathing space at this yeah. time. The, the only thing I would
6: add to that, just now, Peter just made me think of something. I did have a client uh, last week, and I, we I did some TMJ work and did some internal work, and the extra precautions I took with that was wash i mean wash the hands gloved sanitized treated took well, took everything off washed gloved sanitized, <laughs> after i was finished right so it was like it was like quadruple the work right because just want to be ultra kind of careful with that sort of stuff um mm-hmm. it was a client i knew uh which which helps in the sense that i'd seen this person many times before and but you still don't know. There's still the, the unknown of what uh, could be lingering there. But certainly, took lots of more precaution to making sure I I followed everything uh, step by step. We provided we provided kind of like uh, we we have a step by step cleaning procedure for the room in between each client. But also we also provided more or less kind of a a procedures uh, kind of a handout on procedures of actually how to go about treatment and what to think about. Before you treat somebody, what you're doing if you have to leave the room, that sort of thing, to kind of give to the practitioners an idea of what to uh, what to expect, what to think about. I I think it's helped a little bit. I mean, I certainly had some feedback from some of the physios that said, I mean, just it helps just helps make them uh, think a little bit more to be more aware of and on top of what they need to do to help them help keep themselves in the client safe. Yeah,
2: I think that makes a lot of sense in the communication. And then, so just as we just as we look to wrap up here, is there that sort of brief elevator pitch pearl that you want to leave the panelists with just that one thought or takeaway optional but if anyone has like a parting parting note
5: it's hard not to to think of platitudes at this stage for pearls and coming through but certainly you know the classics we're going to be all better for this after the adversity is done it's certainly proving that no issue is insurmountable because we're all still here all and practicing, and um just uh be careful and not getting too comfortable, Nicole. I think you wanted to to
2: say something there,
4: yeah, one of the things is keep up to date because that's something especially going through this with interior health along the way, is things change all the time, so keeping an eye out for the emails from the college, reviewing the documents from the CDC and from WorkSafe CDC on a regular basis, especially, obviously, if you're a clinic owner, to pass that down to your clinicians. Um, In terms of the PPE, you will get more used to wearing it. It, It's, Yeah, at first, it's really tough, and it does get easier for sure. I can say that. Um, Same thing with the cleaning and all that kind of stuff. You, You know, for me, being mobile in the car at first, it was just like, making sure I had everything, and now I have my routine, and it it does get a lot easier as you go along, and the one main thing is take care of yourself because this new way of practicing can be kind of exhausting. It can be overwhelming emotionally, and there's so much change going on all the time, so if you want to be the best practitioner you can for your clients, you have to take care of yourself, so making sure that you're doing whatever you normally do for self-care just to to be the
0: best video that you can be for your clients.
6: That's what I have to offer. The only the only thing I might add is I just saw some, real quick I saw someone ask the question speak about the use of heat packs. Um in our in our three offices we don't use heat packs. And if I did, I'd throw them out. I wouldn't I wouldn't use them right now. It's too it's not worth the risk myself. I think too hard to keep them clean. Uh, but the only thing I else the only other thing I would add was uh um if I put my CPA hat on for a moment, if anybody has any, any concerns or questions uh, related to uh, the Canadian Physiotherapy Association or more specifically uh, the branch here in, uh, in BC, uh, reach out to us at any time. Uh, I think you'll find uh, everybody's pretty um, welcoming as far as uh, answering any questions. I'm always there to help. Um, if you have no someone who knows me and you want to get in touch with you with any questions, I'm always willing to, to talk about it. But at the end of the day, um, I mean as physiotherapists whether public or private practice I mean we're all in the same boat um, I, I, w- I was very appreciative that I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to do a quick little video and send it out to membership and uh, some people I guess saw it and it was more or less at a time when you know no one was working and it was it was, it was pretty tough but we're all in the same boat and things will get better
0: I, I don't know if this is a clinical trial but from my regulatory perspective is uh, you know, Diane, and I have had these conversations with other colleagues at other colleges and and someone said something that sort of stuck with me is what well what we really don't want is for our patient to come in negative and leave Covid positive. So just that, I'd really encourage you to keep reviewing that CDC document um, to to make sure that you feel really confident that you've been able to implement um, as many measures as you can to make sure that you feel that you're Um, doing your part to provide a a safe and uh, clean um, uh, treatment space so that uh, we're all sort of responsible for infection prevention and exposure control and so that that just is going to that is our new normal it's not going away and so we need to just um, embrace it. I, I was saying to Jonathan, I feel like I'm having dreams about that pyramid now because I'm like, it's, it's referencing everything that I'm talking about. So I think just um, really kind of looking to the CDC, they've got excellent resources on there, new things every day. Um, and, and we'll do our best from the college perspective to keep you posted as new things come up that we think are particularly relevant for physio.
3: And just uh, piggybacking on Susan's comments, um, Susan and I were very fortunate that, in that we had the opportunity to sit in on several calls with the Deputy Provincial Health Officer, Dr. Trevor Cornille. And one of his pearls, I felt, was just his constant reminder that, as Susan just said, this is all about infection prevention um, and exposure control. And these are things that we, we either have been doing or should have been doing all along. And we just need to keep doing that, that. and and that will uh, take us a long way forward. Especially if there's a second wave, we really need to uh, respect uh, their guidance around that. And I think we'll be in a, a better place.
2: Very right, thanks, Pat, and thanks to everyone. There's some really some really great stuff in those
1: pearls there. If you're interested in more COVID-19 related content. Another great show you might enjoy is hosted by doctors Sarah Fletcher and Morgan Price. Their podcast is Primary Care in a Pandemic, and it looks at changes to primary care in BC and how healthcare providers are adapting to the crisis. Metamorphosis is a podcast by medical students for medical students to help navigate their professional careers. The first few episodes of the season are part of their COVID-19 series, with an added focus on healthcare workers and how they've been involved with and affected by the global pandemic. On behalf of the UBC Medicine team, I hope you are staying healthy, happy, and safe in this crisis, and we want to extend our sincerest thanks to those who are working tirelessly to keep everyone safe. Thank
0: you. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.